Welcome to One and Done TV. I am the first host that you are hearing, Ian Hamilton. And I am the first host that you're hearing for the second time, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after or in the middle of one season. Or sometimes it's even quicker than that. Sometimes it's like two, three episodes gone into oblivion. Never to be seen again except for by us and a certain ripoff podcast. <laughs> Let it go. It's okay. Let it go. Uh, it just bugs me so I'm, much. I know. So this is the show where we watch shows like uh, Firefly, huh? Nerds, you like Firefly? What about Freaks and Geeks, huh? You Freaks and Geeks out there, you like that? What about Undeclared, Judd Apatow's college follow-up to Freaks and Geeks? Oh, you've never heard of that? Yeah, I guess you're not as big of a fan as we are, jerk. Uh, What about, okay, again, I will preach, we are not talking about John Adams starring Paul Giamatti. Miniseries are off the table. That's right. No, thank you. Not talking about Fargo, because that's four seasons worth of miniseries somehow. So. We're not talking about ER either, because you tried, and it's been around for a bit. We checked. Oh, yeah. We we looked into it. We're like, George Clooney? Yeah. This How has this thing been canceled? Oh, wait. It was on for like 18 seasons. Yeah. We, we got duped there. We got real far into it. What show do you think should have been canceled after one season? Jag. Jag. Uh, you know, old people have to watch something too, John. Then they can watch a babbling brook. Why are there like four spinoffs of NCIS? Why are there three spinoffs of Below Deck? Because it's what the people want. Well, then don't, you know, don't judge Jag so harshly because enough people must have wanted it. You know, Night Court never had an ending, John, even though it was popular. What's that about? Well, there was a Night Court reunion on 30 Rock. And speaking of almost the exact same thing of 30 Rock, today we're talking about Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Aaron Sorkin's 2006 drama about uh, behind the scenes of a sketch comedy show that's very similar to SNL, but it is not SNL. It's uh-uh, not. It's in L.A. Mm-hmm. And it's on Friday. That's right. So it's more like f- the show Fridays. Mm-hmm. If you- Remember that from the 70s? Anyone remember that? We all do. Uh, or was but, but, it that must have been mid or early 80s? It could have been. I'll I'll take your word for it. But before we get into talking about Studio 60, Ian, uh what you what you watching there, bud? So, me and Natalie had kind of a bad Friday no. and we were like, "You know what? We're staying in, we're breaking our diet and getting Chinese food and we are watching the trilogy of trilogies." That's right. You guessed it. Young adult, followed by Twister, followed by What Women Want. I think we all thought, we when you said Trilogy of Trilogies, we just assumed that that would be the three. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait till they Avengers those three movies together. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that's the next Doctor Strange is uh, Mel Gibson and Charlize Theron and uh, Bill. Oh, no. Doctor Strange and the anti-Semitism of madness. <laughs> uh, but Paxton's dead. I know. Bill Paxton died. So, you know, it was like he had a heart surgery and he was supposed to be in the Live, Die, Repeat sequel. And he texted the, the director like, don't worry, man. My character is will report for duty. And then he didn't. That's heartbreaking. Which of the it three is. did you uh, like the most? Uh, I mean, definitely young adult. You know, yeah. it's uh, written by Diablo Cody, directed by Jason Reitman. And it's just kind of a funny, cringy movie. And Patton Oswalt is great in it. And it's... Not too heavy, not too light, which was really nice. Yeah. You know, it was a drama, but it didn't. There are moments where, like, she is falling apart. She She's, like, making a fool of herself in front of people because she's so depressed, I guess. And that's cringe to watch. But it's not like Magnolia or something. You're not really crying during this drama. You're just going, Ugh. ooh. Been there, sister. Been there. You you think I've never spilled wine on my blouse, John? Because I, I know have. you have. I know there is many a blouse that has been at the bottom of your hamper that uh, has not seen the light of day ever again. It's a tragedy. I also, tragedy. I also had a button-down shirt that uh, had pie on it in my trunk for like two years. What kind of pie? It was a whipped cream pie. It was a. It was because of a show where someone was supposed to pie me in the face, but they missed. Mm. They and ruined your shirt. Was, well, yeah. And then I just never took it out of my trunk. That was back in the day when my trunk was just full of crap. Remember that? Yeah. My whole car was my trunk. Because you're um, an artist and artists have crappy trunks. I was just busy. Uh, John, <laughs> what, have, what did you watch? Uh, I started uh, the new season of The Circle. Um, the Tom Hanks movie, the other one with Pat the reality, Oswald the and reality Emma TV Watson. show. You you can keep talking and oh, talking about and the Bill, other circle. Bill Paxton is in that too. Great. So I'm talking about the other one, uh, the reality show, the social media competition where people live in an apartment building. They only they only stay in their apartment. The only way they can talk to each other is through text, through profiles that they have. Some people play themselves. Some people play as other people. And uh, this season, they started off with a twist, which is that two of the Spice Girls are also in the show as oh one my. profile. And it's, dude, Wait, as, I, you as know, one profile. Yeah. Two become one, man. I guess I That's don't a really Spice know Girl what the song. show's about. It has. Yeah, I got that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a, oh, damn it. What is the group that had a TV show that you really liked? And we talked about it in the Clone High S Club episode. 7. S Club 7. S Club 7. It's not, it is not S Club 7, no. But you know I have a special uh, affinity for you, the Spice Girls. You own the Spice Spice World on VHS. And I wore that thing into oblivion. Yes. I love the Spice Girls. I love Spice World. I love Gail Power. How much are you... How much are you keeping up with that Spice World, though? You know, are you staying connected? I watched to that it. Spice World. I watched it recently. I took a trip to Spice World, and you know what? 
Uh, the air was fresh, the tunes were groovy, and I had a great little time. In uh, the summer of 2016, I worked on a rooftop cinema. It, I don't know. It's like rooftop cinemas or something in New York where they put up a big projector on a roof and they show movies and they pay me almost nothing. And uh, we did Spice World one night and the crowd was electric, mm-hmm. singing everything, quoting everything, uh, screaming when Alan Cumming comes uh, on the screen, just wild. It was really fun. It was one of the most fun times I've had. I had at that job, actually. You got to spice up your life more often, man. Spice people up of the your world. Life. Spice Listen up your to life. Him. Well, I'm ready to spice up this show, Ian, because I think it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one. Showtime! In the fall of 2006, NBC launched a comedy and a drama that were narrative versions of what goes on backstage at SNL. One went on to run for seven seasons and win dozens of Emmys. The other was Aaron Sorkin's Studio 60 on Sunset Strip. To quote Aaron Sorkin on season five of 30 Rock, I'm Aaron Sorkin. Walk with me. You know my work. A few good men. The West Wing, Social Network, Liz goes, Studio 60, Aaron goes, shut up. <laughs> I think it's season five. That's but good. there's a there's a good the 15 second clip of it on YouTube I'm gonna put in the show notes. I highly suggest watching it. It's it's a nice little treat. That is nice. Yeah. Studio 60, I would say arguably the more anticipated of that season. Do you remember? the 2006 network season, because I was going through like what was premiering, what was airing around that time, because it was, it was an interesting time. Um, Was that when Andy Barker PI was premiering? You are dang right. It is. It's the same season as Andy Barker PI. I loved Andy Barker PI. (laughs) We'll do it on a later episode. Yeah, I know. Oh, I knew it. It was it was a crazy time for NBC, especially their Thursday night lineup. But there, when what night was this on Mondays or so something? So this was it started on Mondays and it was on Mondays for most of uh its run. And 30 Rock wasn't even on Thursdays when it started off though, which I Whoa. didn't realize. 30 Rock was on Wednesdays, I think it premiered on. And and then it got moved to its eventual home spot um on Thursdays. Yeah, it was a cool season because um, you had stuff like 30 Rock. You had stuff like uh, Heroes. Heroes was Studio 60's lead in, which oh, I think. Wow. And so it was Heroes' first season. Don't you remember like the hype around Heroes? Like that was. That, that exploded. That was huge. That was that was Studio 60's lead in on, on Monday nights. Would you say that was the height of Hayden Panettiere's career? I mean, Am I saying you, your name right? Hayden Panettiere, I think. Yeah, Panettiere. Which I think is what you said. You just said it more staccato. No, but recently I watched a video of her online, her and her boyfriend getting this really drunken brawl with a bunch of people outside of a hotel. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. That sounds wild. Uh, but Studio 60 didn't really have much much competition, it seemed like. because So Studio 60 aired at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern against... Let's see. 
its big show that it was up against was though was CSI Miami. Oh, yeah. I should wipe the floor with that. I it, mean, we're talking West Wing, baby. Yeah, this had West Wing success hype. Aaron Sorkin's first show after West Wing, Bradley Whitford's first show after West Wing, Matthew Perry's first show after Friends. It was a huge, huge deal uh, when it was announced and when NBC got it. And I remember being really excited for it from the commercials. I was too. My mom is uh, is a huge fan of West Wing, huge fan of Aaron Sorkin. What do you think in general? Like, are you a, a Sorkin head? You know, I think think it depends mm-hmm. um obviously a few good men is a great movie i still have never seen a few um, good men which is insane oh wow i, I mean that's that's the courtroom drama to end all courtroom dramas i've got weird blind spots ways. man weird blind spots and that's y- one you of do them. i mean again that was just a movie that was on tv all the time like i don't know how you missed it just like twister how did you miss <laughs> twister it was on tv all the time um but uh, what the what were we talking about? Sorkin. Sorkin, right. So I don't love his I don't I I don't like that I can see his writing most of the time. Yeah, I get that. I think certain projects it um isn't a big deal. Like I think the social network's great. I saw To Kill a Mockingbird, yes. his version on Broadway. We both saw that. And he made it much more of a trial uh play than the book or the play is because he started out with the trial and then interspersed uh, scenes from the book and the movie in the middle of the trial. Mm-hmm. So it was like a trial movie with with flashbacks as opposed to the other way around. And it, it was pretty interesting. I remember, actually, I cried like crazy at the end of the second act. I, I don't remember. even remember what happened, but I, you weren't with me, were you? No, but you told me about it. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, I think that the way his dialogue is meant to come out can take away from the characters. I get that. It makes everyone the same character, thus making everyone Aaron Sorkin. Sometimes when it's when it's not handled the right way, that's how it can be. Mm-hmm. I get that. He I mean, I love a overly written show in general. You know, Happy Endings is one of my favorite shows. I was literally ever. about to throw that in your face. Throw away, my friend, because I will defend that show to the death. And I know. Well, we we got to come circle back to that later because it's like I I have a whole reason for that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin's big because he uh, I think he got he left West Wing I think after what season four, season four, dude. He wrote eighty seven episodes of The West Wing which is almost every episode in the first four seasons. He was busted with like cocaine, mushrooms. He was, uh, uh, he was snowing before Christmas. That's, I, I think, <laughs> I, the studio term for it. So that was in between season two and three. And then he left after season four for what was just called kind of difficulties between him and the network mm-hmm. was uh, what what got out. I'm sure it was... He was he's a pretty difficult dude to work with, you know. Yeah. But that amount of writing is so impressive. I just wanted to bring up the only person I can think of writing that much is Carl Reiner wrote like 34 episodes of the first season of the Dick Van Dyke show. Hmm. That's just like damn, you're writing. Yeah, that is output. Yeah. 
this pure output. Uh, so when it came time for Studio 60 in, in 2006, it was, I got to admit, like, I was really surprised when it didn't find its audience. That being said, I think I had a very similar journey to most of Interested America when I started watching the show. I was really intrigued by the pilot, and then it just, like, started to fade away. People loved the pilot. Dude. People ate it up. It was, I, I think, what, 13.4 million viewers for the pilot. But the interesting thing was that the first half, there was the network later said that the first half hour and the second half hour, there was a significant difference in the number oh, of viewers, yeah. which is we've talked about on the show before. I think maintaining a smaller audience is going to be significantly more impactful than having a big audience and then losing some of them over a period of time. Cause it's, it's, it just seems like it was a story of momentum. I mean, we'll, we'll get into the why yeah, specifics I, of uh, why it got canceled later, but I think that's an important thing to set up was that this show was hyped. up. yeah. Piggybacking on that 30 rock was like the black sheep of the family. 30 rock was like the dumb younger brother to Studio 60 when it came out, but the trend sort of became that the first couple episodes of Studio 60 people were really into, and that was falling off, and then the first couple episodes of 30 Rock people weren't really into, but then it started taking off, mm-hmm. and so they had this sort of reverse trend going on, For sure. and they were compared to each other constantly, and... Uh, at first, people were just like, at least 30 Rock has Alec Baldwin in it. We love Alec Baldwin. Yeah. And uh, they're like, well, who do you want to watch, Alec Baldwin or Matthew Perry? Yeah. And I think uh, the public made their choice. Uh, but let's talk about the the show itself. So Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, it's the show within the show. It is basically Saturday Night Live, except it runs on a Friday and it's in L.A. Let's go through some of the major characters to set the scene. Sure. We've got Matthew Perry, who's Matt Albee. He's the executive producer and the head writer of the show. He writes pretty much every episode. Mm-hmm. And his uh, big partner is um, is Bradley Whitford, who's playing Danny Tripp, who's the executive uh, producer of Studio 60. Uh, you might know him. He's Eric and Billy Madison. He also... Yes! This was his first uh, show after West Wing 2, so he was already a Sorkinite. Dan Tripp and Matt Albee, thick as thieves. I thought they had, the two of them had great chemistry as friends. Yeah, I, I, I agree. They um, seemed like two people that knew each other really well. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to play off of each other. But both of them have their demons. They're both addicts in some way. Were movie people for a bit, coming back to a show that sort of launched both of their careers. And they were brought in by Amanda Peet's character, Jordan McDear, who's the new president of uh, the fictional NBS. Not to be confused with NBC. No. How could anyone confuse that for NBC? No. But uh, Amanda Peet from Brockmire. God, I love Brockmire. I love Brockmire. How much of that did you watch, though? I watched all of it. But she's only in, like, the first season, isn't she? No, she comes back. Well, yeah, but, like, she's in every episode of the first season. And then she's in every episode of season three and four. Oh. Yeah, she comes back. 
Oh, really? Because I only watched the first two seasons. You were, it seemed like you were like aggressive. You were like, yeah, but how much was she really in it? I, I, was like, I love Amanda Pete, but I got to say, she was kind of the worst part of that show for me. A Brockmire? It just, yeah, just, I don't know. It didn't fit oh, for me. She gets better, I think. Okay. I've actually heard that. Yeah. Too. And Brockmire itself just keeps getting right, better. Right. It's just like they did not, I don't know. There was some kind of chemistry issue there. And uh, we also have Steven Weber who is Jack Rudolph, the chairman of NBS, who you probably know from Wings. John, admit it. Of course, You're a big I watched Wings fan. Fly, fly away. That's as the song goes of Wings. I always think of Steven Weber as the evil guy in everything. Yes. He does have that face. episode of Party Down where he's uh, like a Russian guy. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, what I don't great... know why that's. No, that, that's a great Steven Weber performance. Yeah. He. Mm. Uh, yeah, he just has one of those faces that it's like, I have money and you don't. <laughs> and that's Stephen Weber's entire MO. Uh, so yes. he is he is the sort of curmudgeon of the of the NBS uh, board. Uh, still a little sympathetic though. Uh, we also follow uh, the cast. Uh, it's a big cast, but we mostly follow three of the leads, three of the show vets, one of them played by uh, Sarah Paulson. She plays uh, Harriet Hayes, Sarah Paulson, of course, of like American Horror Story fame and uh, 12 Years a Slave. This was like her first big thing. I heard her talking in an interview about it. She she felt like this was her sort of Hollywood coming out party. Like I get that. But you know what? She was in What Women Want. She had like oh a decent God. sized part in it. Yeah, she does. I forgot about that. No, and she, we were like, whoa, Sarah Paulson's in this. She was a day player for, you know, a good while, but I think this mm-hmm. was like her first big show. And so I mean the the thing I really knew her from was the people versus OJ. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was fantastic in that. She really, really was. And so she's Harriet Hayes. She is the probably arguably the big lead of the the, the Kate McKinnon, if you will. If you were to uh, put someone up for lead actress, it would be her. And she is a devout Christian, which is very important to the show. Which goes against Matt Albee's uh, very atheistic beliefs, even though he is Jewish. Um, and they're on again, off again, getting hot and then getting not. Yeah. And this was one of those uh, autobiographical Things. Did you read about this? How she was based on Kristen Chenoweth? Kristen Chenoweth. Yeah. My dad's which your dad, absolute favorite uh, human being in the world. <laughs> which we are not laughing. That we, We're not being sarcastic about. My dad is, he's no. listening to this. He knows he is obsessed with Kristen Chenoweth. He constantly calls her my girlfriend, Kristen Chenoweth. He goes to that every show Barbara, that she's ever done. His Barbara Streisand uh, obsession are probably the two funniest things about him to it's me. Barbara Streisand and Pratt. He loves Barbara Streisand. He loves Barbara Streisand, but he is not obsessed with Barbara Streisand in the way that he's obsessed with Kristen Chenoweth. Okay, you're right, you're right. He, he he's, likes he's her. He's into Babs. He's he, into Babs. He's, okay. But it doesn't define him. Like, I like Barbara okay. Streisand. I think okay. I like Barbara Streisand just as much as he likes Barbara Streisand, which is a normal amount of love for Barbara Streisand. This is uh, his Kristen Chenoweth obsession. Again, I will he bold and underline. And let us know. Yeah, where where exactly how if Kristen Chenoweth is a ten on the obsession scale, Babs is like then, a six, if that. Okay, just let us know, Tom. Yeah, give us a give us a shout. We've got Nate Cordry as Tom Jeter, who is just an actor in it, and I will always call him Nate Cordry, and I will never call him Tom. So get used to it. 
Fair enough. He was in kind of a, a little bit of the heyday of The Daily Show, as well as he was like a writer and producer on The Office. Was he? Yeah. Okay. I'll take your word for it. But this is like probably the most acting I've seen him do. Yeah, and I was really excited about seeing him on the show because I really liked him on The Daily Show. Me too, but it's just so... Uh, this cast is full of comedians and actors, yeah. and that clashes stylistically a bit. Uh, speaking of, rounding out the cast is D.L. Hughley, you know as the voice of Gadget Mobile and Inspector Gadget. Why are you surprised by what you wrote in your notes? No, no. I, actually, Natalie did this for me. Oh, she did? <laughs> That's just so funny. She would. I'm like, okay, the the Hughleys, of course, but then she was the voice. Ian sent me All notes, right. and he was like, yeah, I put together these notes. So, Natalie, when you're listening to this episode, know that your husband is trying to pass I, off your work as his own. I was management. She was labor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Timothy Busfield. Why did you even put him on? Because oh. he's uh, the director. He's like the director of Studio 60. He... Oh, right. Jesus, did you watch I the show? He, I was thinking he was, he was like, like in the every wannabe single Chris Farley type. No, no. Timothy, yeah, yeah, yeah. my goodness. Get your he head in character. the game, Hamilton. He is, he is forgettable. His energy is so strange to me. Yeah, he's very milk toast. Uh, I think. He's uh, Timothy Busfield, though, plays Cal. Uh, he was in Revenge of the Nerds. Which is a that is a fun fact that your which wife is probably found. what what I would have recognized him from actually, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I guess he's in the West Wing. I, I I don't know this guy. He also directed I think six of the episodes of Studio sixty. Oh, mm-hmm. so he played the director and, and he, he directed is a director. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Life imitates art, or Ooh-hoo. does art imitate life? This are the big Kristen questions that we ask. Yeah, um, and you know what, John? Right after this commercial break, we're going to do an exposition dump. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. So when a show is as dense as something like Studio 60 or some of our other longer dramas that we've done in the past, uh, we know that we need to set the stage for what is to come. And that requires a little bit of an exposition dump. This one's going to be a little different, though, because we watched, as we might have mentioned before, all 22 hour-long episodes of the show. We do so much for you, listener. This dominated my life for a while. It was, what? how long do you think we were watching this? Probably like three weeks? Yeah. Yeah, give or yeah, take. Yeah, over the course of, except for I, the last five episodes I binged. Yeah. Which is a whole story in itself. We'll get to the last five episodes. 
But <sighs> first, I wanted to start out with the pilot because uh, the pilot really sets up the themes that they are going to hammer away at for the next 22 episodes. The first episode opens with Judd Hirsch playing a Lorne Michaels type who gets mad as hell after a sketch is cut due to the network censor being concerned that it is making fun of Christianity. Judd Hirsch interrupts the live broadcast to go on to a rant about how art and commerce have always been in a battle and that right now commerce is winning and that art is being censored by the FCC who is beholden to the religious fanatics squashing everyone else's right to free speech or creativity or something. Meanwhile, new NBS Network president Jordan McDear immediately needs to put out the fire. She technically doesn't even start until Monday. Unfortunately, her methods of putting out the fire clash with established NBC executive Jack Rudolph, who tells her at least twice that she's on a short leash, and he's not like the other network executives and is immune to her charms, and he will not hesitate to fire her. But first, he has to fire Judd Hirsch. Why all the executive drama? Because Jordan's unconventional solution is to hire former Studio 60 employees that were fired by Jack Rudolph several years earlier as the new showrunners. Those employees are Matt Albee and Danny Tripp, played by Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitburn. Matt happens to be currently winning a WGA award for writing a movie that Danny directed. Also, Matt Albee happens to be high on painkillers from a back surgery, and the week before, Danny Tripp tested positive for cocaine and cannot be insured to make any movies for at least two years. That's why they take the job. Meanwhile, Matt Albee's recent ex-girlfriend, Harriet Hayes, is a devout Christian who happens to be the star of Studio 60. By the way, she was not at all offended by the sketch that caused all the commotion, which it turns out was written by Matt Albee four years prior. And what's the name of that sketch, John? Crazy Crazy Christians. Christians! which Jordan McDear insists should be the opening sketch to next week's show after Matt and Danny officially get hired. And then we get that uh, sweet, sweet uh, saxophone lick. That is one thing. Okay, I was frustrated by a lot of this show. The theme song to this show was was killer. It was a really good ramp up. That, But did you notice how like on a very serious episode they'd play different music? Yes, they would. It would feel a lot more like the, the bump bums of like Law and Order. Yeah, but it was like a sad saxophone yeah, or something. Like, yeah, like uh, somebody tripped and fell at two a.m. in a alley kind yes. of saxophone, as opposed to. Oh my god! It was, yeah. So that was the entire pilot. Yeah, it is a big fat world that they are uh, setting up here. Yeah, the, did I hit all of the all of the plot points you think all of the themes? Did all the themes come out? Yeah, we've got uh the power struggle with Amanda Peet's character being new and going up against Stephen Weber. We've got Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford who are vets of the show coming back to put their own spin on it. Uh we've got the uh will they won't they of Sarah Paulson and Matthew Perry coming back. I think you you hit everything. One thing though that you did say though you had a bit of a slip you said nbc a couple no! times yeah no mm-hmm. it's, what N- have I done? it's nbs it's the national broadcasting service okay mm-hmm. er, it wasn't system 
we'll never know. Whoa, got you. <laughs> That's a double doink right there. <laughs> Chicago fans, you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, yeah, and then like literally, this show just hammers away at commerce versus art and Christianity versus secularism yeah. and Republicans versus Democrats and integrity versus schlocky entertainment news, right? It is a show that really sort of galvanizes, um, is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I don't know what galvanizes means. Well, then I could probably use it in a sentence though. Yeah, I could. If I use it naturally. I think so too, but I don't think I'm using it right here. In any case though, it really builds up the liberal ideas of free speech and of, you know, we are going to, it's very idealistic in its uh, execution. And it is trying to say, these are all the bad things that are happening in show business. And we, and by we, I mean, I, Aaron Sorkin, am going to fix all of them by writing every single one of them into these 22 episodes. I mean, there is literally an, uh, I have a quote in here about, how the news should be news and entertainment should be entertainment. And he literally had gotten into it with, uh, I think, Tom Brokaw, who released something uh, on NBC about the George Bush White House that was like the West Wing. And Aaron Sorkin was like, stop making entertainment. Stop making news entertainment. Make it the news. I make the West Wing. You stick to the news. This is not what news should be. This is not journalism. And then we're like, okay, we got to test this guy for cocaine. Oh, yeah. It was actually crack cocaine. I don't know if there's... Uh, I got to think there's a chemical difference. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. All of all of our uh, people who have tried crack cocaine, please let us know. Yeah, tweet at us. There is one line, I think it's in the pilot, where... Uh, I can't remember which character says it, but they say no comedian you've ever admired has been afraid of silence. And yes, do they take that ideal to the extreme in this show? They, people are walking, people are talking, people are saying all of their thoughts about everything constantly. And they, it's a show that really puts itself on, on a pedestal. And Mm -hmm. do I agree with the ideals that it is espousing? Absolutely. It would be, wonderful if uh, we you know used art to tell every terrible thing in the world and put a spotlight on it and you know and change people's minds change people's minds exactly he also tries i think to give the christian right-wing perspective some uh, of its voice through harriet yes and obviously if he was Really, he was really he was with Christian Kristen Chenoweth for a couple of years. At this point, it would have been like two, but uh, I guess basing it off her, like there's an episode in here where the storyline goes through a couple episodes, but that she said that the Bible says that being gay is wrong, but she, who is she to judge? And basically, she has a big Christian fan base, but Kristen Chenoweth also had a large gay fan base. And basically, in the show, Harriet pisses off both communities with that quote by one being against them and one not being against them enough 
basically. Yeah. And Matthew Perry's character, too, is uh, his big breakup with her at the beginning of the show is that she performed on the 700 Club, which is uh, Pat Robertson's show. And that was uh, something that Kristen Chenoweth did as well. Is per- that is he an evangelical yeah, Christian or something? Yeah, like a like like a righteous gemstones type. Very much so. Yeah. Ah, gotcha. The worst kind. Yes. Ah, gotcha. And I could say that objectively. That's be not my opinion. That is uh, that is fact. It is written in stone because I'm saying it right now on a podcast. So the show really hammers these. Uh, scenarios home time and time again so rather than go through every single episode of Mm -hmm. this show ian had a fun little idea for for us to play uh ian you want to walk the listeners through that so basically uh as an umbrella over the show they would always have four storylines and four lessons per show and they'd have very little overlap so these are pretty dense episodes, and frankly, we cannot get through all of them for you. So we're going to play a little bit of plot roulette. John, I have assigned some plot descriptions random numbers between 1 and 16 because we're going to discuss those last five episodes. Yeah, we uh, have to. On their own. Oh, right. So this is episodes 2 through 17. 17. Thank you. Uh, And we're just going to go through like four of these to give you a quick taste of what this show is like. Uh, so John, give me a number one through seventeen. Okay, one through one through sixteen. <laughs> you're sh- right in front you, of me. You sure you're you prepped this right? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to be on top of my copying and pasting skills. Okay, <laughs> and then so I'm gonna give the number, and then I'm gonna read the description. Right? Yes. Okay. So you're not gonna know which episode you're gonna get here, but I'm going to paste it on the word document so you can get the random description all right i am gonna go with what's number nine on your list wow number nine is actually episode 10 hey look at that okay so yeah let's get let's get this description going what's episode 10 episode 10 as i'm looking at the episode list is b12 okay this will be a fun one I know this one. Here's the description. Jordan loses her temper in an interview with Time Magazine. The entire cast has the flu and needs vitamin B shots. The new and only writers get taught how to write by a veteran comedy writer who doesn't think anything is funny. Harriet can't tell a joke for some reason. The newbie sketch fails, then triumphs, (laughs) then is pulled due to real-world tragedy. But last minute, come up with a hilarious nonsense sketch at the end. Oh, by the way, Jordan is pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow okay which comes out of nowhere <laughs> by the way okay we got a lot to unpack here so this is about you know a little less than midway through the season the harriet can't tell joke thing is actually one of the things that i thought was legitimately funny 
Uh, no way. I did. I thought it was a good. The whole bit is that Sarah Paulson's character, for some reason, has just like a mental block and doesn't know how to regurgitate like a you know a like a corny dad a, joke or something like that. Right. Like two blanks walk into a bar. One blank says to the other, like she just can't do it. She can't construct a joke, which is. I thought I, it was. Funny. I gotta say, I hated that plot line <laughs> so much. It felt so forced into it, and it didn't feel. I mean, first of all, Sarah Paulson being cast as some sort of incredible comedian is not the best casting, in my opinion. Mm. Nothing against Sarah Paulson, but, you know, you can't convince me that she's funny, and then you can't convince me that she's so funny yet can't tell a joke. That is like, fair, yes. Yeah, and then also it felt so separate from the rest of that episode. It felt like it was like scenes were happening, and then she would just run in and not be able to tell a joke. And like she had nothing else. She had no other reason to be there other than to tell a joke incorrectly. Yeah. Did that do you did that feel that way to you? No, for sure. And I feel the same way about the Jordan storyline where she gets in this interview with a Time magazine reporter and he asks really like right. offensive questions and she's like, I I basically think you suck. And then she gets in trouble. <laughs> and then you find out later she can't take a a, a vitamin B shot because dun dun dun, she's pregnant. Uh, she, it's, it's completely out of nowhere. And, but this does set up, I think one of the more interesting sort of lines of the show too, like the storylines of the show, which is, I think the exit and entrance of the writers that happens. Mm. So what I just want to talk about plot wise, when Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford come on the show, the two head writers are guys named Ricky and Ron. Uh, they then sort of basically get demoted once Matthew Perry comes on. They're writers from uh, their previous time on the show. Ricky and Ron eventually leave the show. Um, and they Because take- Matthew Perry hates them, won't give them a shot. But also Matthew Perry writes every, almost all of every episode. So they're not even doing anything. Yeah. So all the flashbacks and like the beginning of the season, the writer's room is just full of white dudes, just like wall to wall. Uh, you know, just hipster. And then when Ricky and Ron leave the show to make their own show, they basically take the entire writing room with them. So we've got Matthew Perry, the cast, and then there's one writer, Lucy, who's played by Lucy Davis from the British office. Um, she played Dawn in, uh, in the British office. Who, And she's also in Shaun of the Dead. She is in Shaun of the Dead. And they also bring on uh, a new writer named uh, Darius, um, who I can't. The sorry, I'll take that again. Oh, all that Ricky and Ronnie stuff was episode nine, by the way. Oh, so. that was the episode before. That was the episode before. Yeah. Oh man, I didn't realize that. Um, I should know. I have the descriptions in front of me. <laughs> so Darius is somebody that uh, Deal Hughley's character and Matthew Perry's character find at a nightclub. And I thought the two of them, Darius and Lucy, added a really good energy to the show because they were kind of being thrown into this. And so they felt a little bit more humanized than Mm -hmm. a lot of the rest of the cast. And then you add this third writer in uh, who was mentioned in the description, played by Mark McKinney of uh, Kids in the Hall fame. And yeah, I just thought that added 
that their general dynamic added a nice uh, counterbalance to the show. I actually, I liked Mark McKinney. He was probably my favorite character, actually. His backstory was that he was a writer who used to be on the show, but his wife and child had died in a car accident. Yeah. So he doesn't, he's just like a empty shell emotionally. And, um, Matt feels bad and hires him back so that he can sort of teach these new young writers a thing or two so that he can focus on writing the show and the three of them can just work on stuff together. I I loved him as being the comedy writer who doesn't think anything is funny or if something is funny, you don't laugh. He just goes, that's funny. Yeah. And he's just, he he knows everything about the business. He's been kicked around so much. He's just showing them, he like forces them to write a sketch and then it's bad and then forces them to put it on so that they know what it feels like for a sketch to fail because Matthew Perry isn't putting any pressure on them because he is writing the whole show himself. And he's just like, hey, you got to make them feel pressure. Otherwise, they're never going to get good. And I really liked that. Mm-hmm. I did too. Yeah, I think they were more compelling because they weren't as confident as everyone else in the room. Yes. All right, let's move on to the next episode in Plot Roulette. I Okay. All right, so I've got one through 16, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with 15. And uh, while you're pulling that up, I'm doing that because 915 is my anniversary. So if I'm going to have to pick two numbers... Happy anniversary, sweetie. I hope you're listening to this. And if you don't call it out, then I'll know that you didn't. So Wow, nice. Way to put her in a trap. Yep, trapping my wife. Oh, we got a combo. Okay. This is why I was confused by the numbers (laughs) earlier because actually it's one through 14. Uh, (laughs) I I missed a number because episode seven and eight, which you just picked, is a two-parter. Oh, boy. It is crazy. It is a crazy episode. I'm amazed that you fit it into just a couple sentences. So with this episode, Nevada Day, and with another episode, Harry, the Harriet Dinner, and then with the uh, three, there are multiple, multiple part episodes. Mm-hmm. This is the first one. And this is Nevada Day part one and two. Okay, let's give it a go. Weed in a jacket and... Pushing two men leads to a trial in the middle of Nevada. Hollywood versus small town John Goodman judge. Who is it as stupid as they think he is? Big Boss, uh, played by Ed Asner of the network, uh, needs big deal to go through in Macau. But Nate Cordry is under arrest. So the daughter and rich guy visit him in prison because his daughter is a huge fan of Nate Cordry's. Also, Matt and Harriet who Ian spelled Harrietta, debate gay marriage. <laughs> Harrietta, again, you said it twice. Again, did you I, watch the show? Spell, did you watch the spell show? check thing. I, was, I took a lot of notes. <laughs> Don't yell at me. Man. Do you know how much time all of this took up for me, both in the watching and the note-taking? I didn't and the ask writing? you to do this. You said, hey, I, I think this would to. be fun. I think this would be fun. I was like, you're going to do it? He's like, yeah. So he's going to do it. Sure. Okay. So also Matt and Harrietta, Jesus, debate gay marriage. 
Harrietta was not tolerant enough for NBS, but was too tolerant for the Christian group she always sings with. The court case is thrown out because Nate Cordry's brother, not Rob, serves in Afghanistan. <laughs> okay, so this does uh, this does get at a lot of stuff. I wrote it as disjointed as it is. That's fair. I uh, did that on purpose. I, I mean, not the spell, not the Harrietta part, but the rest <laughs> of it. So actually, you'll see a lot of my descriptions are like that. I'm like, this happens, then this happens, <laughs> then this happens, and I guess this happens next. That that sounds about right. I will. I do want to point out that this episode is the source of the show's sole Emmy for guest really? act, guest actor in a drama. John Goodman <gasps> won this year. He was good in 2007. He was good. In it. He was good. So it takes place in Pahrump, Nevada. Um. Mm. And it's a so this happens with a lot of Studio 60 episodes. We start off with very little information. And then through flashbacks, we sort of fill in the pieces. Oh, so many flashbacks. So many flashbacks. Usually it's just to like a couple days before, too. And that's this one. So we start off with uh for some reason Nate Cordry is like kind of dressed like Jesus, uh, but he's in handcuffs in a jail in Pahrump, Nevada. And uh, Bradley Whitford, Stephen Weber, uh, the network's lawyer, and then uh, these two uh, two people from Macau. Dude, played by the guy who plays a lawyer in literally everything. <laughs> he plays a lawyer in The Sopranos and The Wire. He does He's it. always a lawyer. Resting lawyer face is a powerful thing. <laughs> he does. <laughs> and so it's it's a whole sort of series of events where – Nate Cordry's wearing a jacket that has a joint in it. Uh, but it's D.L. Hughley's, Hughley's joint, which he keeps being like, don't arrest him for that. That's mine. Oh, my God. And he gets extra. So he gets arrested for this pushing incident only because he has a warrant out for him in Pahrump, Nevada for speeding several years prior. That he didn't uh, uh, show up for. He didn't show up for the court right. date. So they had a warrant out for his arrest in Nevada. And of they course, do. This is right before the show. They're they're the show is that night. They do. And the big Macau deal is in the mix here. There was a line, uh, a direct line from the show that I thought was very fitting for just the entire tone of the show. There's one episode, a different episode, where somebody just says, "There's too many things happening at once," and I thought that was, dude, I wrote that one down too. <laughs> There are. It was. It was. Uh, it was Danny Tripp who said that. Yes. Yes. It was after they find out. It's, it's the like, options episode. Right. Yeah. Jordan's having a baby. We're engaged. Uh, no. No. This is the one that I found was earlier. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> Do they say that multiple times in the show? Maybe. <sighs> yes. I think it's a lot's happened. Oh, that, it's like, oh, that you makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The last five episodes are chock full of that, actually, where people are like, wait, all of this is happening? <laughs> woof. Woof. And woof indeed. Um, so, yeah. There was – so this Nevada Day thing, yeah, everything happens. The day – like, it's the morning of the show, so they're trying to get Nate Cordry out. Um, and John Goodman is – He's kind of offended, too, by the Studio 60 sensibilities because he thinks, as he says, I believe, everyone between – it's a show that thinks everyone between 
uh, Santa Monica and Queens uh, is a redneck or something like that. And so, yeah, which, yeah, there, there there's a lot of elitism in this show. They're, they're flying to Pahrump in a private jet uh, to close this Macau deal. Yeah, there is. Wow, my brain just kind of broke there for a second because yeah, I'm trying to, uh, to explain right. everything. Exactly. Okay, so the Macau deal hinges on this one very rich man giving them money and because uh, they want to make the Las Vegas of the East yeah. or something in Macau, and his daughter is a big fan of Tom's, and so she wants to meet Tom, but he happens to be in Pahrumpf, Nevada at the time. I thought you were only so going to call him Nate Cordry. Damn at, it. Look at you calling him his character name. Damn it. Ah, uh, you got me. And so then she is in the jail with all of these people, like fawning over Nate Cordry and like trying to flirt with him as he's in handcuffs and stuff. And then uh, the whole court case, John Goodman gives them a hard time for two episodes and then is like, wait, you were at that rally on our side, not at the other side? Our side being pro troop as opposed to anti-war. Because, uh, yeah, I couldn't remember what the protest was about, but yeah. Because I might have uh, been so confounded by the end of this, but it is important to know that Nate Cordry's character's brother is serving overseas. And this is 2006, so we are in the middle of the war in Afghanistan. And you know what, John? I think that leads us into the last third of the show really well, and we will get back to that after this commercial break. And now, a word from our sponsors. Woo! All right, let's just try to, like, go through these three episodes, or these five five episodes. Five episodes. So to set this up for the listeners, the last five episodes of Studio 60 take place in the show in one night. We have one episode called Breaking News, and then we have a three-part episode, uh, which is called uh, K&R, K&R. Uh, parts one, two, and three. And then we end with an episode uh, called What Kind of Day Has It Been? Which, fun fact, did you hear the significance of that title? Did you no. read about that? Uh, apparently, it's the series finale title of every show that Aaron Sorkin's ever done. So that, that is so weird. What kind of day has it been is the title of the last episode of Sports Night and The West Wing and The Newsroom. That is that is weird. As a writer, you'd think he would be more creative than that. Mm-hmm. That's weird. So the show, it takes place. Oh, so he knew it was going to be the last episode. We'll get to that, but I, I have a feeling he did. So the... Okay, how do you want to break this down? So we've got the, the we've got the Danny and Jordan storyline. We've got the Nate Cordry storyline. Um, am I missing anything? Uh, we've got D.L. Hughley's girlfriend breaking up, <laughs> breaking up with him, and then he asks a girl to go to Hawaii with him, but oh then the girlfriend gosh. tries to get to get back together with him. So then he breaks up with the other girl, but then his girlfriend breaks up with him because she finds out about it. But that's not really an important storyline. I just like that one. Uh, D.L. Hughley's Nate Cordry's best friend, so he's always hanging tight with him. 
he uh okay let's start with the nate cordry storyline okay because the first episode starts out with him doing all these sketches in the show uh first of all the show has very low ratings and we we all know this and no one's allowed to talk about the low ratings on set Meanwhile, Nate Cordry's in like every sketch that night. A lot of it is political. And it starts out with him giving a press conference about the war in Iraq. And it's making fun of it. I don't it's know. making it's fun a- of the idea that, oh, we're going to get troops out. And uh, there's no actual movement to get troops out, essentially. Right. Because they're three years into the war at this point, four years. And, you know, it's not what they thought it would be. He also um, is in a sketch called Muhammad the Thin-Skinned Prophet. Right. We got, oh, yeah. So we got Crazy Christians, Muhammad the Thin-Skinned Prophet, Science Schmyance. So, so creative. Such good writing. His his writing's like music, John. Don't you know that? <laughs> if I have to listen to another interview where somebody describes Aaron Sorkin's writing as music. Oh, boy. Right? I heard a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so also this sketch is important because Jordan specifically asked Danny not to start out with the war. And since at this point, Danny and Jordan are dating and Jordan's like very pregnant. Uh, yeah, we skipped the whole in the middle of the season. Danny's in love with Jordan. She rejects him multiple times. He basically stalks her. Calls her over and over again, even gets a new phone number, so she stops screening his calls. He also gets a bunch a of celebrity together. friends to like write reference letters uh, for him. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they get locked on a rooftop together and fall in love. Um, so at this point, uh, they're really deep into the relationship. He wants to be the father of this child. And now they're arguing because of a professional thing, even though personally they're getting along great. As his boss, she is very mad at him about this. Yes. And so after all this happens, this is right after one of their shows, we find out that Nate Cordry's brother has- Not Rob. Not Rob. Has been kidnapped uh, along with two other men by by the Taliban. And they are basically demanding a ransom. And then at the almost the exact same time, Jordan needs to go to the hospital because Danny finds out that she hasn't felt the baby kick all day. And so she's afraid that there's something wrong. So that's how we split off. Uh, so let's start with the Nate Cordry side of things. Okay. Is wait, is that also the episode where Suzanne met Matthew Perry's assistant confronts him about his painkiller use? Wow. Okay. Yes, that is exactly that. Suzanne played by Merritt Weaver. Who's that? Uh, she is an actor who was in, let's see, uh, Run on HBO with uh, Donald Gleason. She was also in uh, Unbelievable, the Netflix uh, limited series with Tony Collette and Caitlin Deaver about uh, a serial uh, rapist. And then she's been in other oh. stuff. Yeah, so she's a great actor, and it was weird. Yeah. To, it was weird to see her, but it was nice to see her she kind of shows up basically as like a featured extra extra in the first part of it and then she becomes perry's assistant and she's the pa that's promoted to personal assistant mm-hmm. production assistant to personal assistant which actually is a pretty big leap yeah production wise i thought she she's that's like what you want as a as a production assistant you're like 
please God, somebody just let me be your assistant so I don't have to do this anymore. Pluck me, please. Pluck me out of here. Yeah. And yeah, so you are right, though. That that also happens. And he's like, yeah, so I'll quit pills. And then you're he's like, like, I okay. quit. Uh, uh, when? And the, he's like, an hour ago. I just quit. And everyone just and believes like, him. Well, now Suzanne's like, do you understand how depressed you're about to be? You're about to be super depressed. He's like, that's what they tell me. And she's like, no, my mom was a pill addict and you don't know. Everything... Every personal revelation comes out of somebody pushing somebody else to the brink. And yes. that happens frequently during the show. Uh, there's also a lot of general sort of irrational thinking. And this happens a lot in these last five episodes. Well, they're they're under a lot of duress, John. Can you blame duress. them? A lot and of they're duress. not getting any sleep because this is all in one night. Mm-hmm. So this is like this is like 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. It ends with the the sunrise. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. It starts with the show and ends with the sun rising. So, and earlier in the in the season, it's this uh, theme of there's always a 4 a.m. miracle mm. that comes to you when you need it. Yeah. I mean, usually they're talking about writing, but in this case, it's everything's better. Yeah. Uh, but you don't know that yet because Nate Cordry's brother is being held hostage in Afghanistan and he's trying to stay away from the press, but they send this army captain with him to calm him down and gauge his trauma and they bond and argue and bond and argue and bond and argue. And also Matthew Perry is dating this sexual harassment lawyer who is uh, defending studio 60 in a sexual harassment suit from a writer that worked there years ago, but also is like totally flirting with Matthew Perry and like asks him to ask her out and is like flaunting it. And uh, also her law firm knows a super company that that saves hostages from South America. Yeah, black ops like security thing. So Mary Tate is the lawyer's name and she does a lot in a very short amount of time. My goodness. What a weird wrinkle, dude. (laughs) She manages to, um, yeah, defend NBS from the sexual harassment lawsuit. She manages to get in contact with her contacts overseas to sort of try to organize, organize this ransom delivery no, you were right. Organate. Yeah. Harriet, Henrietta. Damn. <laughs> Henrietta. Yeah. Glass houses, man. Glass houses. Eventually, though, there is news that breaks that uh, Tom's brother uh, is killed, but they keep saying that it is uh, a... It was another murder that happened weeks before, so the... Army person is like, hey, chill. I think it's still going to be okay. I can't tell you anything. And that's a big thing throughout it. It's like one person of authority saying, I can't tell you anything. And then our main character saying, but you got to tell me. There is. And then being like, it's classified. And he's like, I'm his brother. I'm his brother. The entitlement of these characters to know, need to know everything that profe- and everything everywhere all at once all at once baby and 
D.L. Hughley's character, who is, um, you know, Nate Cordry's best friend, has another thing, too, where he tries to basically tell the press, because uh, the press starts saying that Nate Cordry and his brother aren't close, and so D.L. Hughley turns that into a speech where he basically aligns with the with Al-Qaeda, and that doesn't turn out right. great. Right, he goes out to talk to a reporter that he trusts to get the story straight about Nate and his brother, but then ends up screaming at a bunch of reporters that he wishes they all got shot by friendly fire and would pop Chris Stahl if it if they did. By which he's like, no, but I was just trying to say that like journalists are like feeding off of this stuff. These are entertainment news reporting on politics and it's not real news and it's just for money. And it's like, oh, really, Aaron Sorkin? Is that what you've been saying for 22 episodes? <laughs> we know. We know. We know. We do know. Uh, but everything turns out okay. And Nate, brother, Nate Cordry's brother is fine. They do an extraction mission and everything's good. So then we go to the hospital where, okay, this is going to be a lot. Bradley- also, I was like, damn, you got to watch again? <laughs> My goodness. So Bradley Whitford's character and Amanda Pete. Amanda Pete is like, is the baby going to be okay? They're like, we're going to need to do an emergency C-section. She gets carted off. Bradley Whitford's like, tell me what's happening with her. The doctor is doing his absolute best. He keeps calling the doctor a kid over and over again, even though the doctor has shown nothing but confidence in his abilities to be able to communicate and do his job in the best way possible. But Bradley Whitford still accosts this doctor constantly throughout about five episodes, but the baby gets delivered fine. But uh, Jordan has some issues, some complications. So she gets an infection. She's basically knocking at death's door for a bit. It's like complication after complication after complication. And the doctor keeps telling Danny, like, it sounds worse than it is. Mm -hmm. It sounds worse than it is. And he's like, but everything keeps getting worse. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, okay, she has a 25% chance of organ failure. (laughs) And he's like, what? It's a lot. And Sarah Paulson's there too, because she and Amanda Pete have become friends because she's trying to teach everybody to pray. Everybody's got to pray. These last two episodes. She's like, how about I teach you how to pray? And they're like, show me. There's a lot of... And they're like, oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> That's like... I swear that happens three times. Oh, yeah. Like like Nate Cordry, Matthew Perry, and Bradley Whitford all are like, show me how to pray. And they're like, oh, I'm not into this. <laughs> it is a lot of repetition. It is what... It is what should have been one episode stretched into five. But the writing's like music. Yeah, everything's got a rhythm and you got to say it in the way that he writes it. Because if you change wouldn't to would not, then the entire show is garbage and everyone should just burn straight to hell. That's right. And eventually she's knocking at death's door. Oh, I also didn't mention that Bradley Whitford, after seemingly five weeks of dating Amanda Pete proposes to her as she's being carted off. And he's been carrying his ring, uh, the ring in his pocket for weeks. Yes. And everything happens fast in this show. She immediately says yes. So he keeps also throwing out the, she's my fiance. And we're like, dude, it's been like 20 minutes. You, yes, I get that you love her. And I, I respect that wholly, but 
So when she starts going into bad stuff, he's like, I'm engaged to her. Like, that's my daughter. And I need to see my daughter. And eventually Mary Tate, a super lawyer, draws up adoption papers that uh, they're basically going to try to get uh, Jordan to sign while she's all drugged up so that if something does happen to her, that the daughter can go to Bradley Whitford's character. Luckily, everything works out perfectly okay. Amanda Pete wakes up and uh, then... Bradley Whitford signs a piece of paper that Amanda Pete's already drawn up because she's already been ready for Bradley Whitford to adopt her daughter even before he proposed. She had brought the adoption papers to the hospital, right? So many adoption papers being thrown around. And then, okay, this is the most insane out of all of this to me, (laughs) is that so with the adoption papers that Amanda Pete has brought, Bradley Whitford signs it and he's like, oh, the... Her name's Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca uh, McNear. What a great name. And she's like, look at what you just signed. And it's Rebecca Tripp. The baby takes his last name before they get married or engaged, and they've maybe been dating for five weeks. Holy cow. Yeah, I was incensed. I was incensed. Incensed? It, I was not irate. I was like just a step below that. I was incensed. Right, you were you were boiling to the point of fueling, fuming. It was a it was a cauldron of despair and gender dynamics well, that I did not care can I, for. Can I guess? It was like, ah, 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 see what you don't know right now, listener, is that Ian is playing his John soundboard that he's made for me over the past thirty years, and so. Come on. Mm-hmm. He's not actually making any noises. He's just taking clips from I'm just my life. Pressing my synthesizer. <laughs> uh, and then the show ends, and everyone's just smoking cigars because Danny had a kid, even though it's his fiance who's the one that was almost dead, and Nate Cortry's brother's alive. And oh, Matthew Perry and and Harrietta Her- decide <laughs> that they're going to continue to be on again, off again, and then. Uh, they look and they turn the clock back up. They realize that they've got another show on Monday and that's the end of the series. Oh boy. So the show is very hard to find. Uh, Ian and I had our means. You could buy the show if you want. Um, hopefully you can find everything online these days. Yeah. There's a, this was a dense show. This was a lot to watch, uh, but I think uh, we've got some superlatives to give out. Don't you think? This is the Dunzo Awards. The Dunzo Awards are given out to every single show that we watch. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the most. It could be the weirdest. Whatever it is, we have decided to give certain elements of this show their due. A lot is happening in this show. A lot that we can award. Ian, do you got your first Dunzo Award to give out? My first Dunzo Award goes to several storylines that had the least resolution possible. (laughs) Or you could say the most dropped storylines I've ever seen, perhaps. Are you talking about the pure volume of them or are you okay there are so many of them. Can you I mean the can you give me your three favorite? Your okay, two favorites. Two favorites. Uh, the biggest two. I mean, I know there are more than this, but the one, the ones that really pop out to me are, 
Okay, the Macau deal. <laughs> oh it's my this... god, I forgot that they didn't resolve that. Exactly. No, remember the last time the Macau deal's mentioned is like episode it's this big through line from episode like 2 to 15 and the last episode it's mentioned is when Jack and Ed Asner like we did totally gloss over the Ed crusade. Asner of the, the whole thing. Exactly. They like there's billions and billions of dollars on the table. But they're so upset that the FCC is fining them over something that they think is ridiculous, that they're willing to fight the FCC, even if it means putting the Macau deal in jeopardy. And Ed Asner's like, he's like, how can I, or Jack's like, how can I ask you to do this? Because this is like the deal of a lifetime. And Ed Asner goes, but fighting the FCC is the fight of a lifetime. And I always want to take them on. And so Jack flies to the Macau guy's daughter's viola recital and promises to, she wants to quit viola to pursue comedy and promises to uh, convince her to keep doing the viola in exchange for the Macau guy to torpedo the deal that they made together so that the board will get behind the FCC fight. And it was an interesting storyline until they carried her drunk ass around for an entire episode. Um, And then it's never mentioned again. Nope. This is the fight and the deal of a lifetime. And it's like, Two thirds of the season, he's like, Matt and Danny, your antics are going to get us, get in the way of the Macau deal. He's like, Matt and Danny, these ratings are getting in the way of the Macau deal. He's like, Jordan, that DUI everyone's talking about from eight years ago is getting in the way of the Macau deal. And then they just don't care. Jack's last storyline is talking DL Hughley into apologizing for his statement. Mm-hmm. That's it. And no, we don't know about the Macau deal. We'll never know what happened with the Macau deal. And then the other storyline that jumps to mind is there's the journalist that comes in oh. to write like a very real piece. Martha Odell 60. is the character's name. Right. And she's played by a, a great actress. Christine Lottie, I think. Yeah. I think you're right. And... She's like writing this piece on them and they kind of like her as a person, but are very skeptical of her being around the show because they think she's going to write a hit piece on them. And this is like this undercurrent of several episodes and that doesn't get resolved either. So instead, they plan to make the last five episodes about they just they jump the shark. Okay, with this Nate Cordry's brother is kidnapped stuff. They jump the shark. They just throw the biggest, most dramatic thing they can think of into the mix and focus on it for five episodes instead of resolving like seven strands worth of story that are left just dangling for nothing. For like, it's not even good. It's not even compelling. What are you doing? Your writing is like music. And yet you end a Frank Sinatra song by just 
I I don't I don't know. Just unintelligibly banging on drums. I I can't believe it. I have not seen you this worked up in a very long time, but I get it. It is. You have to understand, John. His writing is like music. <laughs> uh, it's the percussion. It's the brass section. It's the woodwinds. It's uh, it's the whole orchestra, and he is our conductor that we are just trying to follow. Glad we got that there. I also would like to throw out uh, another drop storyline. Hallie Galloway, the president of alternative programming, i.e. reality TV, that is sort of gutting for Amanda Peet's job for like the second half of the season. Right. They're getting into it for like three episodes and she's totally on her tail and then just disappears. That's right. Yeah. So there's another one. There's plenty. My f- also like Nate and the British writer dating is yeah. like well that sticks so that sticks around barely. There's like it it doesn't it doesn't really earn itself. It's like it's like the beginning of a story and then a couple episodes they're like we're dating even though we haven't seen them do anything. Well, I was much and more then- invested in them than I was in Bradley Whitford and Amanda Peet, honestly, because they at least had. Okay, oh, I'm not going to get into it. It it would be too long. But they at least Him have harassing her. <laughs> there's that. There's the lack of uh, there's the lack of aggressive behavior. Lack of boundaries. Yeah. Uh, though there is the most insane case of I'm lying for the sake of conflict, uh, where Nate Cordry lies to Lucy Davis's character. Because he wanted, he wants to go on a date with her, but uh, Stephen Weber says, "Hey, you need to take out this Macau woman who is really into you." And so, what does Nate Cordry do instead of saying, "Hey, I'm going on this fake date with a person I don't like"? No, he says, "I uh, have a charity thing that I need to go to where I'm going to be dressing up as a waiter and I'm going to be serving guests." And so, when Lucy Davis shows up at the party that they're at, inevitably. Of course she's upset with it. But of course, then they make out by the end of the episode and then they're together throughout the rest of the series. Can I tell you, <sighs> they actually, they tried to earn that storyline and it's it's pretty loose, but they did a better job of it than you're saying um, because he gets advice from Matthew Perry to lie about it because he was going to tell the truth. And Matthew Perry's like, no, the only thing that she's going to hear is I'm going to dinner with another woman. So he takes Matthew Perry's bad advice, but it comes back when, oh, what is her name? Harriet Harriet is dating the other director, Luke. Oh, God, oh we haven't gotten into Luke. Line. Oh, my God. Well, no, that another drop No, that line. gets resolved. They they break up. I guess. Yeah. 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 Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. But, um, there's an aspect of their story. I don't know if I have a quote here that is like anytime she's talking about. I have no idea where you're going with this. You're, you're, it looks it's, like it's, you're looking for like, me to save you and I don't know what. Any, no, 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 no. Anytime that she's talking about something, each of the men, it just makes them think of the other man. Hmm. And there's like a trigger there. So that's why Matthew Perry brought it up is because he's dealing with that situation with Harriet, but it's still pretty unearned. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, can I get to my first Dunzo? 
Oh, I thought that was your first time. <laughs> no, no, I was still continuing on yours. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. My first Dunzo goes to longest hallways. Ah, nice. And that would be for this show. You're proud of that. I am very proud of that. Of course I am. Because it is a lot of walk and talks. But I will say, and I the reason I want to bring this up is the production design of this show is actually exceptional. The massive set that they must have built to sort of encapsulate the studio is genuinely impressive, I think. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like a real studio for sure because there's like weird rafters where people could just kind of look on and it's like it's like there's box seats to uh, a, a comedy show taping and I don't really know what those are about. But the amount of uh, movement that happens, it's its great extra work. Like a lot of, it does feel very lived in as a, as a set mm-hmm. in which I'm sure made it super expensive too. Like this show is, looks so pricey. And, oh yeah. But there are of course a lot of famous Aaron Sorkin walk and talks where people are walking down these, uh, lo- these long hallways. And so you got to give it to the longest hallways. Um, Ian, what's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo goes to the worst Sorkin rant of the show. Ooh. So there are many times during the show, and John, I'm sure you'll agree, when the characters are saying something that really isn't their character, it's just Aaron Sorkin spouting off about something. What are you talking um, about? I think that somebody would always walk down a hall and say, try not to be funny. This is a TV show, which is another real no, line. I'm talking about things like a shower cap has a warning, says fits one head. You buy an iron, look at the box. It says, warning, do not iron clothes while wearing them. A carton of pudding, caution, pudding gets hot when heated. I don't think we should be giving these warnings. I think we're interfering with a valuable thinning of the herd. That's D.L. Hughley. But you could just, you're like, that's not D.L. Hughley. No, that's, that's Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin. Yeah. And that also is not the quote. That was just, in, that was a couple examples here. It's like, thieves get rich, saints get shot, and God don't answer prayers a lot. <laughs> uh, actually, that's just kind of a cheesy line that wasn't, that's uh, not really an Aaron Sorkin line. Um, there's, uh, Stories need conflict. That's understandable. Except reporters are supposed to be storytellers. Stop trying to entertain me. Apparently, Aaron Sorkin was critical of Tom Brokaw. Oh, okay, I already wrote that down. Um, <laughs> let me see another one. What's your? G- uh, give me your rant, dude. We've got, we've been holding these people hostage for so long. I was held hostage by this show. <laughs> oh, here it is. They're reading the New York Times, and the New York Times references a blog and Nate Cordry goes Bernadetta, the Bernadetta blog writing in her pajamas. The New York times is going to quote Bernadette so that the people can be heard and to show they're not the media elite. I prefer when they were elite. I prefer credentials. It's like we've all lived the last five years in a Roger Corman film called revenge of the hack. I have to care about what the internet says because everybody else does. All right, dude, you're, you're spouting off about, you know, you're you're tired of the way media is right now, and we get it, okay? Yeah. We get it. Yeah. Thank you. Aaron Sorkin was off the air for a few years uh, from the West Wing, and he had thoughts, and they gave, him, had... they gave him the chance to say those thoughts. 
He had thoughts. Okay. Um. Oh, oh, this is another good one, actually. <laughs> Dude, goes, come on. <laughs> he goes, it's a continuation of the one-sheet world. A movie poster will make the money. Don't worry that we don't have a story. We can make all our money before word of mouth can kill us. So he's venting about how posters sell movies and stories are bad. Because I don't want right, you to get, get an ulcer. I'm just going to save my second Dunzo, if that's okay. Get to it. Okay. My second Dunzo is for the most confusing infusion of real life. So the show utilizes a lot of special guest stars through, um, you know, through the device of the the show itself. There's hosts, there's musical guests. Um, Allison Janney uh, is in it. And clearly there is a, this lives in a universe where the West Wing happened uh, they use a lot of NBC personalities of the time as hosts of the show. Wait a minute. They use, it's in a universe where the West Wing happened, but Bradley Whitford's in the show. Absolutely. So Ugh, okay. I didn't even think of that. But this isn't what but they've also got like Jenna Fisher is one of the hosts. Masi Oka of Heroes is one of the hosts. Uh, Howie Mandel is another one of the hosts. That's not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> The show lives in a universe where SNL also exists. And that confounds me for a couple of reasons because you could have just not had that. You could have had mm-hmm. Lord Michaels not exist. You could have had Saturday Night Live not exist. You called the network mm-hmm. NBS for heaven's sake. And you didn't. So theoretically, NBS and NBC live in the same world. And some of the NBS shows are NBC shows. Because they do reference heroes. They do reference deal or no deal. They do all of this stuff. And yet, so why would Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip exist if they had all of, I guess you could still, you ha, you could still have a show that looks and sounds exactly the same as the other one. And they're just running on competing networks, but are they on the same network? I was so confused about the, fusion of nbs and nbc throughout the show and you're so confused you're genuinely i am so because they use so many of the saturday night live things too they you know uh we've got so and so as the musical guest so stick around we'll be right back is what every host says they do good nights they have cue cards they do Everything that SNL does except for B SNL, and yet there is also SNL. I don't know why they made SNL a reality here. It was or why they didn't just call it NBC. Or I agree. It was but it theoretically is in a place where NBC exists. They don't even say Saturday Night Live was on NBS because they don't they didn't have a solution for it. Oh my gosh. I mean well, what's crazy to me about that, too, is 30 Rock exists in actual NBC, mm-hmm. and they make fun of NBC all the time. So why didn't they just do that, too? I don't know. I really don't know. I think that it was – my guess is that it was a pi- – like, Studio 60 was a pilot that maybe was kind of shopped around, and so they had the NBS stuff in there, and then they just stuck with it. Why? I don't know why they didn't change it though. And it just genuinely Well, John, his me. writing's like music. You can't change it. <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> we you know turn that's 
We know that he's a master flautist. Asks him to a C, and the whole show falls apart. (laughs) I did hear, though, that uh, Aaron Sorkin tried to get access to the SNL like backstage uh, when he was researching the show, and Lord Michaels wouldn't let him because he didn't want to focus too much on the backstage drama. He wanted to focus more on the show. Um, which kind of begs the question that I really wanted to ask. Do you think Aaron Sorkin likes comedy? Well, he doesn't write comedy. I know I he doesn't write comedy much. because the sketches in the show are terrible. They're like people pretending to do sketches. Yes. They're... There is a layer of disconnect where it's not like they're really doing a sketch it's like they're phoning it in because we all know it's fake. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They, the thing that 30 Rock, I think, did so great was that they really only focused on the show itself for probably like four episodes. And then they just were like, oh, this is the framework in which we're going to talk about entertainment and politics and every and just be crazy outside of it. Well, all the sketches on 30 Rock 2 were supposed to be bad, so they'd throw it they'd really play that up and just make everything extra bad. Like fart doctor jumps to mind. Exactly. Tina Fey was werewolf bar mitzvah. Yeah. Liz Lemon was never supposed to be the best writer in the world, but Matt Albee is supposed to be the saint of comedy and he is going to bring it back from the dead. And I I genuinely do think that Aaron Sorkin has too much of a cynical viewpoint of like what comedy can do for the American public. I think that he he ideal he idealizes it to a point where it's completely unrealistic and so therefore we can't connect to it and yet he still made the show so much about writing the show. Like why couldn't you do all of your entertainment industry rants with everything happening in the background and nobody caring? The second you put merit onto it then we're going to expect something good and then when we never see something good because the sketches are trash i think this is the most like i've run out of breath talking consecutively um you're so upset and that's and you know what the weird thing is i still kind don't of hate i it. don't hate the show <laughs> <laughs> i know what you mean um i told natalie about halfway through that I think I was starting to like the show as a defense mechanism. I think it's Stockholm Syndrome, honestly. Because I knew I was going to have to live with it for so many hours of my life. And try, I'm not. we're also not tipping our hats yet on how we would, uh, if we would renew it here. Okay, nope. this is a complicated show with a lot of emotional baggage. I was going to say depth, but really it's baggage it to it. And there is... It's it hints at being great and falls short in many ways. But uh, going back to your point, it just feels arrogant to me. Yes. Like the fact that he's God's gift to comedy writing and the comedy sucks. And the idea that in the second episode, they make fun of themselves just by rewriting the words to... Um, Oh man, it's from Pirates of Penz- Penzance. Oh, is it's, that what that is? That that song that's it, in the second episode? Uh, I'm a, a modern of a modern major general. Modern major general. Yeah. That that song. So they parody. They just change the words of that song to be like we're uh, 
A modern network TV show. Modern network TV show. And they're the the major model. Major model of a modern network TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're model citizens. And they're like, oh, don't make, don't bother that our producer got caught with cocaine. And they're like, oh, 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 oh. and it's just, it's clever rather than funny. And clever is always comes across to me as arrogant. I totally agree. That's the perfect way to say it. Absolutely. Yeah. I Because there's, you just, I, I don't know if it's even as a writer myself, but I can just imagine someone standing behind a script this like this and then in other shows too i i see it i feel like i see it in happy endings too going back to that where it's like somebody has the script in their hand and they're looking at it and they're going god am i good look at how look at how witty that is <laughs> wow Oh, but look at me. The difference between a happy endings and like a studio 60, A is that happy endings is actually funny. And B, it is it's witty as opposed to what I just call studio 60. You called it witty. Not witty. Uh, no, 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 but before that I had uh I had a different word. I'll think of it. It's arrogant. That's yeah, that is basically it is. what you said. And, you know, but when you are Writing cleverly in a sort of grounded... Exactly. Yeah. When you're writing cleverly in sort of a grounded environment, it does, it does like put more, give it more attention, I feel like, than it does when it's in a heightened environment. You know what I mean? I think when, and I guess it's all just part of the language of the universe, but again, when you're sharing a universe with a bunch of other things that are real makes it so hard to merge the two in in a big way. Did you say you thought he was overinflating the importance of comedy on politics? I didn't say that, but did you read that? <laughs> no, I don't think I said that out loud. Did you, I? You said uh you alluded to it. I did. I think, but yeah. That is that is how you feel, correct? No, I do. I mean, it is interesting to see Eric Sorkin going from the West Wing to this, where he's basically putting the same stakes on completely different contexts. He is putting the weight of the world as opposed to, you know, the federal government. He's putting it into the entertainment industry. And that just makes the whole thing feel. There was a there was a phrase that I I recently heard uh, on actually the Parks and Rec rewatch podcast. Alan Yang, one of the writers, talked about the idea of chump stakes, uh, which is where you put in stakes for a show or a movie that the audience never buys there's any actual danger to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for example, if like a major character was going to be moving away you know that they're not going to actually move away because they're the main character of the show and the show wouldn't exist without them. Mm-hmm. And I thought so much of Studio 60 was chump stakes. Like, Madden and Danny, they're going to get fired again. It's like, no, they're not because they're the two leads of the show <laughs> and they're going to be fine. Like, I, you know, there was part of me that thought they might kill off Jordan. I did. I did. I was like, I well, agree with that. It's the last couple episodes. They might do it. I did. 
I do agree with that. They're they're yep. clearly amping up the drama here, and they'll just do whatever the hell they want. The fact that they did a kidnapping and a you know a near death in the final five episodes of the show, uh, right? A dramatic, uh, a dramatic birth, a near death, all this uh, prayer. Jack locks DL Hughley in his office. Yeah. Lots of uh, lots of big stakes stuff that didn't feel big stakes because honestly, the context in which it was being dealt with was frankly silly. And dude, <laughs> the sexual harassment lawyer being connected to this, being like, "I know people that can get him out. It'll be like ten million dollars," and everyone's like, "We'll pay for it. Don't worry about it, Nate. We'll cover the ten million dollars," and everyone wants to pay for it. The you know, I think the most fun that I had watching the show, though, was the episode before uh, the five episode finale, which was the the disaster show, the Alice and Janney one. Another one. I had a good time with that. the The setup with the show is that like this is the live broadcast where like everything goes wrong, and it didn't the the play that goes wrong. Yeah, and it wasn't that great as a farce but to throw Alice and Janney in there and just have her be exacerbated by like just exhausted by everyone around her and they and all of them just being like well we could just pin this on you when you leave so that was funny it was weird that Matt and Danny weren't in that episode at all or Jordan um or Jordan and I it was like very heavily focused on the director that was the and best use of I, him for sure. I think that episode. What the best use of him wasn't when he th- uh, broke a table with a coconut, or when he accidentally let a snake loose in the studio, or when he broke the props table after all the props people quit. <laughs> Which was that episode? He did. Yeah, I know. the The part in that episode that did make me laugh was when Alice and Janney's squibs didn't go off when she was supposed to get shot. And then a half hour later, they do go off in a different scene. Mm-hmm. I thought that was funny. That was funny. And the, it had one of the most like genuinely nice moments. I think it probably maybe it was because it was arguably the most optimistic view of show business that I think was in the entire show, which was so the end of the episode happens and they're doing their goodbyes. And Allison Janney uh, is up there and she starts like screaming basically as the credits are rolling. Like these guys, they, their props team left. Like nobody had my back. Everything was terrible. This, that, and the other. And then the director, uh, Cal goes over the mic and he's like, Allison, we turned your mic off. So we're still watching you though. Your mic is like, just smile and wave. Just smile and wave. Your, your mic is on in here though, in the control room. So we can all hear you. And I'm sorry that this was such a terrible night, but you wouldn't trade it for the world anyway, right? And then she just like smiles and she she just says, thank you. He's like, tell me that you didn't have the time of your life. And then she just goes from being grumpy to be like, I did. Yeah. It was nice. It was, was, I wish there were more moments like that. That. Oh, I hated that moment. I I, I thought it was so cheesy. It was cheesy, but you know what? With all the cynicism that it was surrounded by, it just, it was some nice levity. You know what it is? I don't think I really like the guy that plays the director. Yeah, that's I fair. just he always had a weird energy. I felt like he he was just kind of aloof, you know? He was like smiley, but then sometimes I don't know. His energy was was just weird. I don't know if his character was necessarily written evenly. Mm-hmm. 
And now, a word from our sponsors. John, uh, somehow this episode is longer than the Lovecraft Country episode, (laughs) which I assumed would be the longest one we'd ever do. So why don't you let us know how this show got canceled? So I alluded to the fact that it had a huge pilot uh, opening, 13.4 million viewers on average, even back then, still very good. Um, It did have a significant fall off for the first to second half hour. By episode five, though, their viewers had dropped 43%. Dang. So that's a big uh, thing. That being said, the network still picked it up uh, for a few extra episodes after its initial 13-episode order. And then after episode seven in November, it was picked up uh, for a full season. That being said, like I kind of alluded to my experience with it, which I remember the last episode I watched live when it happened. And it was the episode there's where Nate Cordry is like touring his family around uh, the studio when they come to visit. I remember that scene very specifically. And then I just like gave up on it. I think that was like episode oh, six. And his dad hates him. His dad hates him, yes. So the show got like generally positive reviews, um, you know, kind of like mid seventies, I think on Metacritic, you know, people liked it, but I think people just didn't really care by about halfway through the season that it still existed. I mean, 30 rock had finally found its voice. I mean, I don't know. When do you think 30 rock got good? I think it's like episode six. Yeah, I, I know what they mean. It it took a couple episodes, but actually, if I watch it now, I like the whole thing. But I remember I had only I started watching it like season two, maybe, and then eventually went back and watched season one and thought it was not very good. But at this point, I uh, I think it's all good, baby. Mm-hmm. And. The idea of 30 Rock and Studio 60 running at the same time, I think, is one of the biggest things that killed it. Because like you said before, Studio 60, strong pilot, peters off. 30 Rock, weaker pilot, picks up. And also, when you look at the two shows next to each other, Studio 60 looks so freaking expensive. It is so such a big show with big sets huge cast, lots of extras, you know, just a huge ordeal. And so I think when they were probably, it also, you know, Lorne Michaels has had a long relationship with the network as well. So he was a huge champion for 30 Rock as a show. Tina Fey wrote the show for herself. So she was able to find its voice, I think, a little bit more assuredly than Studio 60. I think all of those things played into 30 Rock being ultimately being the winner of that conflict, even though it wasn't obvious from the beginning, but got really good reviews. I think it got five or six Emmy nominations as well. The next year, they're also like entertainment weekly named it the worst show of 2006. (laughs) So mixed at best, but it started at Monday, Monday nights at 10 and it was running, you know, on a pretty regular schedule through most of its uh, season. However, Uh, It went on hiatus from February 19th to May 24th. That was the, it was a three month difference between episode 16 and episode 17. Oh, they started interesting. They shared the time slot during that time with 
another one and done, the Black Donnellys. Do you remember wow. the Black Donnellys? I do. They were, what is it? It's like an Irish Boston mob show or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got to watch that too. That's on there. But the show. Not before Terriers. I don't remember Terriers. Yeah. We got every, everyone the first time we did this was like, you got to watch Terriers. Okay. We'll get to going. Terriers. So show came back uh, May 24th. However, NBC announced the cancellation of Studio 60 on May 11th at that year's upfronts. So they still aired episode 17 and our five-part finale after the show got canceled, which is why I wonder if there was an original title for that last episode. But then Aaron Sorkin, after finding out the show got canceled, changed it to match his brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, But overall, 30 Rock ratings what do you think what uh what uh else could have led to its demise uh i think you're exactly right it's it's not just low ratings it's not even a critical darling it probably by the end of it it probably had like okay ratings like four million so still so pretty bad for that time but also it was in the summer too so exactly it was too expensive uh, the ratings were just okay. It had declined sharply, and it wasn't the critical darling that they hoped it would be. Um, yeah, people were talking smack on it as early as November, at least. Uh, so it just it, it just it just fell off the cliff. It was over, and they knew it was over, which is why they wrote those last five episodes. Yeah, it was tough. I think though. People forgot about it, I think, as it went on. It was just too much of an investment. I also read something, too, that it was right before they started tracking DVR numbers, which I think Mm. is an interesting point. Uh, Because apparently once they started tracking DVR numbers, which was like in December of 2006, Studio 60 was gaining a million viewers in its like plus seven rating because that's how they track DVR like the seven days after it airs, like the people that watch it on DVR which I think could have helped the show that there were so many people that were because Monday night at nine central, 10 Eastern. That's, I mean, for me, that's pretty late, but I'm an old fogey. So who knows? It is tough to sustain in that uh, time slot, but they also definitely couldn't have kept it too close to 30 rock, which started airing on Thursdays. There was um, a quote from Steven Weber that I found where he he described it as people had sharpened their knives for Studio 60 just because of Aaron Sorkin as a personality. And like there was, I guess, a decent amount of media drama around this, like hype, you know, in, in kind of a gossip rag kind of way. It was a hype machine thing. I think when you have, again, Sorkin, Whitford doing West Wing, Perry doing Friends, bunch of other right balance and it then out it's all newcomers. clearly about aaron sorkin's like drug issues also matthew perry's drug issues yeah there's a lot of just kind of drama around their stories and people just as soon as they didn't love it wanted to hate it It was built up hugely it was, i think if it came right. in with more sort of modest expectations it could have found an audience a little bit better 
Um, but with all of that momentum that it had going in, because it couldn't carry that, it was impossible to justify it over the long term. Agreed. So, John, that brings us to the question. Would you renew? I would not renew. Yeah. I I thought you were going to say renew. I thought you were going to hit me with that. It just, it was, I did enjoy most of it, but man. Most. I enjoyed a percentage of it. I would say more than 50% of it. And the parts you enjoyed, you enjoyed a lot, right? There was some good stuff in there. Honestly, there was some stuff that I, there was, it wasn't funny. But it wasn't supposed to be either. It was a drama about a comedy show. And I thought the performances were really solid. I thought the setting was an interesting one. There were just too many confounding choices for me to buy into the world to make it reasonable enough for me to want to stick with it for a long period of time. And I think that's the big thing for me. Is like, it's an interesting experiment, but what I want to keep following these arrogant throughout the rest of their lives? No, I really don't. I would rather spend my time on other things. It's it's like how I imagine fans of Lost watching the last like two seasons of Lost being like, I don't know, maybe it'll get better this week. Yeah. And I could see that happening. And it's just, I mean, maybe it was because we watched many episodes in a row, but there were some cadences and quirks that, I just couldn't get over the second I noticed them. Like the fact that half of the show is basically people repeating information that they've already said, except a little faster. <laughs> like, uh, there was so much repetition. Like, uh, there's the one episode where, uh, Matt Albee's like running around being like, Hey, do you remember Tim Batali? And people would be like, Tim Batali. Yeah. Tim Batali. He was a writer here. Tim Batali was a writer here. Yeah. Tim Batali was a writer here. He had the, he had the shirt and the pants. Oh, Tim Batali. I don't remember Tim Battelli. You don't remember Tim Battelli? And I was like, good. And the twist is that he was, was Tim, Tim Battelli. It's like seeing the picture in The Shining. <sighs> yeah. You know? And Tim Battelli is an anagram for Matt Albee. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So does that mean he had a drug problem in the past yeah. as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. And earlier in that episode when the musical guest gives him other drugs, she's like, oh, yeah, it's hard when you're hitting drugs. Sometimes you don't know what's real like and what's a dream yeah here have these drugs <laughs> <laughs> so there was just they're just cadence quote like things there that i was just like i can't i can't stick with this for too long or else my brain might break i think i texted yeah. you a couple times while we were watching this i think my brain is broken i think my wife texted you messages of hate multiple times while i was watching this show yeah she had a good one i'm gonna find it real quick uh, she said, uh, cue me launching into a five minute rant about studio 60. Every time I hear a ridiculously unbelievable stream of Sorkin-esque word vomit come out of An- Amanda Pete, Sarah Paulson, Matthew Perry, DL Hughley. And it's a gif of, uh, Willy Wonka saying good day, sir. First of all, it's Jeff and sure. Otherwise I agree. She said, I'm barely watching and audibly scoffing. She would just walk through the room and roll her eyes. Like she almost had her eyes stuck. 
her, she was rolling them so much. Yeah. Elise walked in on me a couple times watching. She's like, what is this? She walked on in on you and it was your great shame. Don't look. <laughs> Save yourself. This is my private shame. <laughs> private shame for a very public format. All right, Ian. Now the question's on you. Deal or no, that's Howie Mandel. And because he, he's in the show. Would you That was kind of a funny bit, actually. I kind of like that. That bit. was kind of a good bit. I thought Howie was funny. Mm-hmm. So would you what I want? Be new. I think it's got to be a no. You know, I like the pilot. Then I hated the next like five or six episodes. But then I thought it really picked up in the middle. Uh, I thought John Goodman was good, even though that storyline was ridiculous. And then I liked it in the middle. And then the ending just killed anything that was good about that was potentially good about it for me. It didn't need it, to be five episodes. It could have maybe been two. Do you agree that the the hostage storyline was jumping the shark? Oh, yeah. It was them trying to be too dramatic too quickly? I think so. And I think, I do think Nate Cordry did a good job with what he had. It was nice to see a little bit of range from him. But yeah, I, I just think overall it was a bit uneven between like, the comedy actors and the actor actors like the com the comedians weren't quite as good at being serious and the actress in question was not quite as good at being funny yeah i do see that i do see and that. natalie kept uh scoffing at her wig <laughs> um but no i i can't i can't justify any more of the show if you just stuck with the storylines that you're building towards, maybe I could have. If it if it had a better ending, I I could see myself defending this show despite me ragging on it for the past hour. It but it needed somebody to rein it in, and that yeah. is what ultimately made it the more frustrating experience. We didn't get Aaron Sorkin needed his Danny trip. Yeah, he did. He needed somebody to say, "Hey." We've got enough storylines. You can lose one of them if you want. Yeah. How about ending those storylines before you begin 10 other storylines? Yeah. And then ending them immediately or just forgetting them. Like I said, there's four storylines per episode. They don't merge. And there's like four lessons we're supposed to learn every time. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things I wanted to bring up really quick before we sign okay. off. One of my big pet peeves about the show is it's writers writing about writing uh-huh. is one of my big hatreds of media. There are good examples of it, but it has to be great. Otherwise, it's bad. And something that annoys me about writers writing about writing is quoting writers as if everybody just knows them and their work. Oh, my God. I have a lit- okay, the first five Ugh. episodes, they quote Arthur Miller. Patty Chayevsky, Patty Chayevsky, very hard for like two or three episodes. Bukowski, uh, Commedia dell'arte, which she keeps pronouncing wrong. And <laughs> she's like, Commedia dell'art. What? People just don't understand Commedia dell'art. Uh, Moliere, Machiavelli, August Stringberg, Stringberg, Strindberg, Strindberg. 
uh, knowing Pericles quotes off the cuff, knowing the most famous poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge off the cuff, or another poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge off the cuff. It kills me. That, that is, you are so in your own head at that point. Mm-hmm. You're so in your own head. Nobody relates to this, right? Except for maybe English majors. Our writers don't relate to this. English majors relate to this. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up was Bradley Whitford, like 90% of the show, has his glasses at the bottom of his <laughs> nose and is always looking above the rims at people because that's his like cool guy look. He's like, there's also one point where it looks like he's holding blueprints and it was very confusing to me. <laughs> yeah, he's always got his hands crossed like holding something. Like he just has a couple cool guy looks like that. Um and then I'll, I want to leave everyone with uh I listened to an interview with Ed Asner a while ago where he talked about being on the show and how he changed one or two words and how the producers would be like, Ed, you you know, Aaron Sorkin's writing, it's like music. If you change any little comma, you know, it just throws off the rhythm. And Ed Asner just thought it was a load of crap. <laughs> and him describing it was so funny to me, and I could not find it in time. Uh, but I loved it. I loved it. It's amazing. I I think Aaron Sorkin doing more movies and less TV is good. I like. Did you see Molly's game? I did. How was I it? I liked it. I like that. I like Trial of Chicago 7. Um, mm. Really? Even though Eddie Redmayne is horrible? As a I person? Said it. No, as an actor. Disagree. I don't, I don't care to learn about him as a person. He has, God. He has one of the great line well, readings of all time. What are you talking about? Are you talking about Jupiter Ascending? Of course I'm talking about Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> I create life and I destroy it. It's one of my favorite lines ever. And we have destroyed about two hours of your time, everybody. <laughs> so you can find us at One and Done TV on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at one and done pod at gmail.com. Do not email one and done TV at gmail.com. We don't know who that is. So I don't just don't. Don't do it. Um Venmo me at Hamel Chin. And remember to get the you know what? Rate us and review us too. Right. Give us a rating, give us a review, give us a good review. Even if you're lying, I don't care. I have no integrity. <laughs> Venmo me money and give me a five star rating. Cause I asked politely. And slightly threateningly. Um, also, remember to get that Lodge plastic scraper for your dishes. I highly recommend it. Cool. Similarly, make sure that you check out How To with John Wilson on HBO Max. It's just a show that really makes the world a better place. And you don't get many of those. So, my jo- Joe Para talks to you. No, is, is we're not talking about Joe Para. We're talking about John Wilson. You had your time. Give me mine. With that, we're done. You know what? We're done. 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 Studio 60 and done.
Do 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 sometimes with your family, but in the blink of an eye, it's all gone. It's one and done TV. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.